Um, Allison and I have been married uh, now for uh, 17 years uh, this past February, and uh, we have been parents for eight of those 17 years, almost nine years at the end of this July, Shepherd will turn nine. So uh, we will have been parents for nine years at the end of this summer. And uh, being a parent is great, especially being a parent of young kids. If if you are a parent of young kids and you don't think it's fun, you're just not doing it right. Uh, I I know they can be stressful and difficult and they can push you to the brink of losing both your sanity and your Christianity. but you just, you just should love being a parent. I, I just love being a parent. I love being a dad. Uh, and more specific than that, I love being the dad, the shepherd, and Grayson. And there's some things that once you become a parent that you begin to learn that you didn't know before you were a parent. Uh, matter of fact, there's lots of things. Uh, but there's some things that I think Alice and I have learned along the way since we have become parents that there was just no way that we could know before we became parents. Uh, One of the things that I have recognized as a dad, I'm sure she's recognized as a mom, and for those of you who are moms and dads, you you figured this out as well. Uh, There is just something. There's just something about watching your children love each other that blesses your heart in a way that nothing else can or nothing else does. I didn't know that before I had kids of what joy it would bring me to look at my kids loving each other. Uh, you ask Shepherd, you ask Grace, and hey, who's your best friend? I mean, they're going to just tell you without even thinking about it. My brother, my brother. Who's your worst enemy? My brother. Uh, you know, but no, they don't say that, but it kind of works out that way practically. You know, but to see one go to the pantry and to go for a snack or to go for a treat, and they come back with two, not because they wanted extra, but because they thought of their brother. Or to see them cuddled up on the couch watching a movie with their arm around each other. I mean, to walk in a room and see that as a dad, walk in a room and see that as a parent, I'm telling you, it does something to my heart that nothing else does to watch my kids love each other. To listen to them say, I love you. To watch them think about each other or defend each other or pray for each other. I'm telling you, before I became a dad, I just didn't know what watching your kids love each other would do to your heart until I became a dad. The second thing that I have noticed along the way is that it's really awesome as well to watch your children love other children. Not just love each other, you know, love their brother, love their sister, but to actually love other kids. I mean, that is a blessing too. I mean, it does something to my heart. Uh, We're always on shepherd. Pay attention, pay attention, pay attention, pay attention. You know, he has an attention span. It's about as long as some of your alls. It's not very long. And and he just zones out. He looks out a window and you'll be talking to him and he's somewhere else. And we're like, you got to pay attention. You got to pay attention. And, And the thing that frustrates, you know, his parents and his teachers, he still continues to make A's and B's on every report card, report card, even though he pretends more than pretends he's just not paying attention half the time and and so we're always we're on and pay attention pay attention we went to a parent teacher conference uh back a few weeks ago and we just love shepherd's teacher and she was showing us her report card and you know progress and everything was good and just the way you want it to be as a parent and 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 then she said you know just sometimes he just stands up walks across the room and i think here we go again (laughs) you know and and why why does he do that well somebody across the room drops their pencil on the floor and he gets up and goes over and wants to pick it up for them i'm like well now i don't know how i feel about it because that makes me feel pretty good i mean that i i I think that's a win uh and then you know she tells a story about you know uh there was, you know, it was ice cream day a few days before this. It was ice cream day and every kid's supposed to bring their money to ice cream day. And, and so when it became ice cream time, all the kids were going out with their money. And, and Shepard looked back and there, there were about four kids sitting in the class 
who wasn't going, he asked the teacher, so what are they doing? He said, well, they, they didn't have money. And so he goes over to his backpack, pulls out a wad of cash. <laughs> First of all, I wanted to know where's the wad of cash coming from? And he pulls out a 20, says, I want to pay for it. And, and I'm telling you, I'm a crier. I, Allison knew what was about to happen. I'm sure parents were walking by looking at this dad crying in there with his wife and the teacher thinking, Lord, his poor child must be doing terrible. But I'm telling you, I, that did something to my heart to, to hear about my kid loving somebody else's kid, to watch my boys think of others and to want to share with us. I'm telling you, that does something to my heart. But I'll tell you what else I've noticed since being a dad, since being a parent. There's nothing that will grieve you more or tick you off faster than to watch somebody else mistreat your kid. Parents, can I get a witness? I don't care if it's a coach. I don't care if it's a teacher. I don't care if it's an adult. I don't even care if it's a child. I've been ticked off at seven-year-olds before. I don't care if it's immature or not, but you're going to mistreat my kid? I'm telling you. That, that just does something to me. I saw this in Mama Bear a couple of weeks ago. We went on a cruise with some friends of ours and, and their kids, and it was our last day. And it was a day at sea, and we had been at a different port of call every day, and so it was the last day we're sailing home, and so there's a pool here and a hot tub there and a pool here. And, and, and so the boys, they were just kind of going from hot tub to pool to that pool, back to that pool to that hot tub. They're up there playing games with other kids, and, you know, they're just doing what kids do. And then all of a sudden, Allison, who's, you know, laying out in the sun, I'm sitting beside of her with my, you know, sunscreen shirt on, 100 protection, and, you know, I'm sitting there, and all of a sudden, she just perches up. And I'm like, what's wrong? What's wrong? And she went answer me, I said, what's wrong? And she was like, shh. <laughs> and then I start looking at where she's looking at. And apparently there were a couple of women who didn't want to get their hair wet that was in the other pool. And they wouldn't let Shepard and Grayson get into the pool because they didn't want kids to be swimming with them, even though it was a pool where kids could be swimming. Well, I, I immediately knew this could go really bad, really fast, because they do not know that the lioness is hiding in the bushes. <laughs> the, these poor women do not know the danger that is about to befall them. And, and, and if she does what I think she's about to do for people like us, we end up in the news when we do things like that. And so I was like, I'll go handle it. No, you won't. Shepherd, Grayson, I want you in the pool right now. Oh my gosh. Oh no. Because I'm telling you, Something rises up in you when you see somebody mistreating your kids. Now, here's my question. Where does that come from? Why is it as parents that we love to see our kids love each other and we love to see our kids love other kids and why is it that something rises up within us when we see our kids mistreated? What if it is the thumbprint of God upon us as mothers and fathers and parents? What if that's true for God? What if the heart of our heavenly father comes alive when he sees his children loving each other? What if the heart of our heavenly father loves to see his children love other children and do kind things to them? And what if the heart of our heavenly father is grieved when he sees his children being mistreated by somebody else? I think it is true. I think it's true because of a principle that we see all throughout the scripture. And here's the principle. Love commends love and condemns unlove. Love commends love and condemns unlove. This is something you see in both the Old Testament. This is something you see in the New Testament. 
that God commends love, God celebrates love, and God condemns unlove, acts of unlove, words of unlove, behavior of unlove. We see this throughout the Old Testament, but we see it most clearly and most definitively. We see it in the New Testament, in the Gospels, with Jesus. In the Gospels, we see Jesus. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see Jesus commending love and condemning unlove. Sometimes he did it subversively. Sometimes he did it blatantly. Sometimes he did it in a roundabout way. Sometimes Jesus just did it by what he did in that moment. But Jesus, throughout the Gospels, he's always commending love and he's always condemning unlove. Now, I want you as a church and me as part of this church, I want us all to fall deeper in love with Jesus and have a greater admiration and respect for Jesus because Jesus is far greater than what we have ever imagined, imagined him to be. And, and when we read through the gospels, I, I want you to understand the narrative that is the Jesus story. I want you to understand the narrative that Jesus stepped into. When Jesus went public with his ministry after he was baptized by his cousin, John, when Jesus went public with his ministry, he took sides and he made a stand. He took sides and he made a stand. Now, if you're a 20 or 21st century evangelical in America, you have been told that good Christians take sides and make a stand. That's just what you do. You take a stand and you take sides. That's just what you have to do. If you believe the Bible and you love God and you're a champion of righteousness and holiness and all of those good things, we just have heard all of our lives that you're supposed to take sides and make a stand. Well, when Jesus showed up, that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus took sides and he made a stand, except... Jesus took the sides of people and he made a stand for people. That's what Jesus did. Jesus, he made a stand and Jesus took sides, but he took sides and made a stand for people, especially one particular group of people, a group of outsiders, a group of misfits, a, a group of people who had been forgotten and abandoned, who'd been marginalized and mistreated, a group of people that were consistently discriminated against. Jesus decided, I am going to side with you and I'm going to stand for you. Because when Jesus looked around, no one was siding with them and no one was standing for them. So Jesus decided, I'm going to be your friend. I'm going to be your friend. And I'm going to like you and I'm going to love you even though you're not anything like me. And you know what? He did. He liked them and they were nothing like him. And they returned the favor and they liked Jesus even though Jesus was nothing like them. And so Jesus sided with them and he stood for them. Now, this is really interesting and this is really important because all of us need to know the narrative of the Gospels. We need to understand the story of Jesus. And we need to understand how it is that Jesus was ultimately put to death and how he was buried and was raised from the dead. We need to know how it got to that point. Now, when Jesus decided that he was going to side with people, a particular group of people, and he decided that he was going to stand for them, a particular group of people, when Jesus became the friend of sinners, because that's how that group was regarded, when Jesus became the friend of sinners, he simultaneously became the enemy of those who had never been a friend to sinners, specifically the religious establishment. The religious establishment were the ones who had kicked those people out, who said, you're unlovable, you're unacceptable, you're unholy, you're unrighteous. God has no place for you in his family. When Jesus decided to be a friend to that particular group of people. This particular group of people who were the religious establishment, the Bible believers, the theology lovers, those who loved worship, those who loved the temple, those who loved holiness and righteousness and truth, those people decided that Jesus in that moment was their enemy because those people were not friends 
to the religious establishment. And if Jesus was going to be friends to those people, Jesus was not going to be the friend to the religious establishment. Because now Jesus' friends are unholy and they're unrighteous and they're unacceptable to God. So Jesus, too, must be unholy, unrighteous, and unacceptable to God. Jesus sided with sinners. He stood up for sinners. And when he did, he became the enemy of the religious establishment. Now, let me say this to all of us because this is really important. I say this for me, I say this for you, I say this for Somerset, I say this for Williamsburg, I say this for all of us. If you are a Jesus follower, if you call yourself a Christian, if you love the word of God, if you love the laws of God, if you love things like holiness and righteousness and you love the idea of truth, let me tell you what you are at risk of becoming. You are at risk of becoming part of the religious establishment. The religious establishment took sides against God in the name of God. They became the enemy of God's son, God incarnate, God in the flesh, in the name of God. And they didn't even know it. And this is the danger. This is the danger of becoming religious and not knowing it. This is the danger of becoming legalist and not knowing it that we ultimately take sides against God in the name of God. And the reason they did that, the reason they did that was because they had a misunderstanding of the scripture. And this is the principle that Jesus surfaces over and over again throughout his conflict with the religious establishment. Because when you read through the gospels, it's like why in the world was Jesus at odds with the religious establishment? Why was he at odds with people like that? People who loved God, people who loved the temple, loved worship, loved righteousness, loved holiness. Why was Jesus at odds with them? And here's the principle. When you misunderstand God, you end up mistreating people. The religious establishment had a faulty understanding of God. They had a misunderstanding of God. And when you, when me, when us, when anybody has a misunderstanding of God, they end up mistreating people. It's what always happens. And the religious establishment along the way, they begin to adopt and accept and to teach and propagate and tolerate and facilitate a bad, faulty idea of God. And because of it, their misunderstanding of God led to a mistreatment of people. Jesus became the enemy of religious people when he decided to be a friend to irreligious people. Jesus became the enemy of righteous people when he decided to become a friend to unrighteous people. Jesus was rejected and Jesus was hated by certain people because of how he accepted and loved certain people. That's the narrative. That's the conflict. That's the tension that existed between Jesus and the religious establishment. That is still the tension that exists in many local churches today. That is the tension that exists between Christians of different stripes and different colors and different tribes and different denominations. It's the tension of who is on God's side. Jesus didn't appear to be on God's side. The religious establishment thought we are on God's side. And then they looked at Jesus and how he did ministry. And Jesus constantly fueled speculation and sparked controversy. He, he seemed to just love doing that. He refused to take public positions on everything, and it drove the religious establishment crazy. He refused to speak about every issue, and it drove the religious establishment crazy. 
He refused to answer every question and it drove them crazy. Matter of fact, you read through the gospels, this is, this is incredible, especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are called the synoptic gospels. And the reason we call them the synoptic gospels is because they're all written with the same optic, the same, the same perspective. Now, John records some of this, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they get a lot of this. When you read through the gospels, Jesus is asked far more questions than he's ever willing to answer. And on top of that, he talked about old things in new ways. He took old words and redefined them. He took old doctrines and began to cast doubt on them. He challenged old ways of thinking and old interpretations. And when the religious establishment looked at Jesus, they said, this man is dangerous. This man is a compromiser. This man is a drunk and a glutton. This man is a madman. They even said that he was demonically possessed. And in the end, they concluded. They concluded that Jesus was the enemy of the kingdom of God. Now think about that. That scares me. That gives me pause. That takes my breath away. To think about as we follow Jesus and the deeper in love that we fall in love with the scriptures, and the more that we believe in the virtue of godliness and holiness and righteousness, that there is a danger that we can end up on the wrong side of God in the name of God, quoting the word of God. And the ironic thing between Jesus and the religious establishment was this. They shared many of the same beliefs and the same values. They shared the same national history. They shared the same customs and traditions. They were all the children of Abraham. They were all part of that covenant that God had made with Abraham and his descendants. But here's the thing, here was the rub. And this is where we have to start in order to get where we're going to go in this series. What they disagreed about was not those values and not many of those beliefs. What they disagreed about were the hierarchy of those beliefs, the hierarchy of those values. What's most valuable? What belief goes at the top? What belief goes at the bottom? Which beliefs go in the middle? The question that caused them to separate into two opposite directions was this question right here. What's most important to God? The religious establishment had an answer. Jesus had an answer. They were different answers. The question for all of us is, what's most important to God? The question we're all still trying to wrestle with in almost any given situation, what's most important to God? What does God care most about? What is God most concerned about? What is God most interested in, in this situation, in this circumstance? What is most important to God? Is it my theology of God or my ministry to people? Which one is it? My theology about God or my ministry to people? Which one is most important? Is it the convictions I have or the compassion that I give? Which, 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 which one is it? Is it lawfulness or mercifulness? Which one? Is it my position about an issue or is it the person behind the issue? Which is most important? Is it the letter of the law or is it the spirit of the law? Which one is most important? Is it the extent of the law or is it the intent of the law? Is it the parts of the law or the point of the law? What is most important to God? And this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where faith and practice collide. This is where theology and ministry collide. This is where convictions and compassion collide. And this is where Jesus and the religious establishment collided with one another. This question 
is where your clean cut beliefs or what you think are clean cut beliefs bump up against the messiness of real life and real people. They have different answers to this most important question. Now, Matthew, who was once upon a time one of those outsiders, one of those misfits, one of those folks that have been told, God doesn't love you, God doesn't have a place for you. Matthew, when he writes his gospel, Matthew may be my favorite gospel, I don't know. Sometimes I think it's Matthew, sometimes I think it's John. But, but Matthew is one of my favorite biographies of Jesus because Matthew from the very beginning, and, and Matthew, he was an incredible storyteller because his gospel is so much about showing us how Jesus was different from religion and how Jesus was different from the establishment and how Jesus separated himself and he sided with people and he stood up for people that the religious establishment said, God doesn't care or want you. That's what Jesus did. And Matthew, it stuck out to Matthew because he was one of those people. Jesus walked up to him one day and said, hey, I know you're a tax collector, but I'm inviting you to follow me. It cost Jesus some credibility. It cost Jesus some influence with certain people, but Jesus didn't care about that as much as he cared about Matthew and Matthew never forgot about it. And so Matthew writes about instances, interactions that Jesus had with religious folks that really surfaces this question. What is most important to God? What is most important to God? What is most important to God? And he's also gonna show us the answer, the disturbing answer that Jesus would give over and over again. Here's what Matthew records. He says, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. Now, that, that's the point of this particular story. It was happening on the Sabbath. The disciples were hungry, that's Jesus' disciples, and they began to pick some heads of grain and they began to eat them. Now, a little bit about the Sabbath because most of us are Gentiles, we're not Jewish. The Sabbath, the commandment about the Sabbath was the fourth commandment of the Big Ten. Jewish people had about 613 or so commands, but 10, they, that, that was the big deal, the Ten Commandments. And the fourth of the Ten Commandments was about keeping the Sabbath day and keeping it holy. Observing the Sabbath day and keeping it holy. The fourth commandment about the Sabbath was the longest commandment of the 10. The Sabbath is a very big deal to Jewish people. Matter of fact, it's one of the three things that made up Jewish identity. Sabbath observance, circumcision, and the dietary laws. That's what it meant to be uniquely Jewish. Take any of those things away and you're threatening someone's history. You're threatening their identity. And so the Sabbath, again, that's the focal point of this particular incident that Matthew's going to tell us about. That's the backdrop. Now, the Sabbath was intended to be a day off for everyone and everything. It was a gift. It was God's gift to his people. Now, when you're living farm to table, I mean, you're living farm to table. If you don't grow it, if it doesn't come up, if the harvest doesn't come in, you know, you're not going to live. There, there's no other food. You've got to grow your own food. And in that type of culture, they had to have a mechanism in which they gave everybody a rest. And God said, hey, this is my gift to you because if not, you may just work yourself to death. So I want you to give the animals a rest. I want you to give the land a rest. And I want you to give yourself a rest. It was supposed to be the best day of the week, but you know what religious people had turned it into? The worst day of the week. Because that's how religious people work. That's how legalism works. That's how religion works. It takes what God meant for good. It takes a gift that God gives us and it turns it into oppression. It turns it into a curse. And, and so they had made all this Sabbath stuff extremely, extremely complicated. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. But here are Jesus' disciples. They're going through a field that's not theirs and they're eating grain that they did not plant. But that's okay because Israel had a public welfare system. 
And in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 23, verse 25, God said, don't harvest around the margins so that the father, you know, the widows and foreigners and the poor could feed off the margins. And so this was Jesus's disciples taking advantage of the public welfare system in first century Palestine, first century Israel. So that's what's happening. It says, when the Pharisees saw this, because the Pharisees are always watching, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. So again, they're turning the best day into the worst day because God had only said, keep the Sabbath day holy and not work. So inquiring minds wanted to know, what does it mean to keep the Sabbath day holy and what does it mean not to work? So over the generations, religious leaders, some of them scribes, some of them Sadducees, but almost all of them Pharisees, the Pharisees began to write commentary on what it meant to keep the Sabbath day holy and what it meant to break the Sabbath. So they wrote these commentaries about what you should or shouldn't do on the Sabbath in order to keep the Sabbath. And those commentaries became laws. Those were not God's laws. Those were men's laws. Those were people's laws. That's what we call legalism. When you take something that God says and you add more rules to it, when you add another step to it, when you attach regulation to it, that's legalism. That's what had happened. And so they took their traditional rules and laws about the Sabbath and they elevated it to be equal with God's word. And so they made commandments in order to protect the commandment. They'd actually said there's 39 things you can do to break the Sabbath, 39 things that constituted work. They had things like if you have a toothache on the Sabbath, you can't pull your tooth on the Sabbath. Suck on some vinegar and get over it. That, that was kind of how, how they went about it. You couldn't spit on the ground on the Sabbath. They thought about everything because if you spit on the ground, there's a seed beneath the soil. What if that seed germinates? You're guilty of working the fields on the Sabbath. You can't take a bath on the Sabbath because if you spill water on the floor, you're washing the floor. If you break a bone on the Sabbath, you're gonna have to wait till after the Sabbath to set the bone. I mean, they're serious about the Sabbath. You have no idea how serious they are. About 120, 130 years before Jesus showed up during the Hasmonean dynasty, the, the age of the Maccabees, thousands of Jewish men laid down their lives. They allowed the enemy to invade and they refused to pick up their swords because they did not want to break the Sabbath. That's how big of a deal this was. So when the Pharisees saw the disciples taking grain, running it in their hands, and then putting it in their mouth, they were guilty of about three different things. They were guilty of harvesting, processing, and preparing food. And they said, hey, look, these hungry men are eating. And so here they are. Because of their interpretation of the scripture, they are on the wrong side of God. Now, let me say this, and let me say this real clear because this is really important, and don't miss this, so I want you right here. The scriptures did not put them on the wrong side of God. Their interpretation about the scriptures put them at odds with God. It is an important distinction. Their interpretation of scripture choked off the flow of mercy and love and kindness. They said, here's some hungry guys. They're eating. They're breaking the Sabbath. Hey, but they're hungry. Oh, we don't care if they're hungry. They're breaking the Sabbath. They care more about the scriptures than they did the people for whom the scriptures were written. Say, what? See, the question is what's most important to God? And they think what's most important to God is God's word, God's laws, God's commandments. They think that the scriptures are more important than the people that the scriptures were written for. 
They think the commands of God are more important to God than the people that God gave the commandments to. And this is the rub. This is where it gets uncomfortable. This is where it bothers us. This is where we scratch our head. This is where we're like, but I thought that was the case. I thought that the thing that was most important to God were those things. And Jesus is gonna poke at them and say, you're on the wrong side of this. And so Jesus, he, he makes his case. And he's gonna use two examples. He doesn't really respond to their insinuation, but he, he gives a case from the scriptures because they're Bible lovers. So he takes the Bible out of their hands, opens it up, and here's what he says. Haven't you read what David did when he and his command, commandments were hungry? And I love this. He's not questioning their knowledge. He's questioning their interpretation. He's not questioning whether or not they've ever read this. He's questioning whether they've actually ever seen this in its true light. If they've ever been able to see the true application, if they've really been able to interpret this particular scripture appropriately, correctly. And so he says, have you not read that story in the Old Testament about David when he and his command, him and his men were hungry? Haven't you read that? Come on, guys. I know you have. Remember, you know, David was, you know, next in line to be king. Saul was king, but Saul hated David because he thought that David was after his throne. And so Saul was pursuing David, but David, he was fleeing from Saul because he didn't want to get killed by Saul. And so he had, you know, a small group of men that were with him and they were helping David stay alive because they believed that David was the next king and, and David's fleeing. And they don't have any resources, so they go to this place called Nob, and, and there's a place there. There's the house of God there, and priests are there, and they serve God there, and they make sacrifices there, and they're hungry. And Jesus said, don't you remember that when they entered into the house of God, he and his companions ate the, the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. And I'm telling you, we have no true gauge for how controversial Jesus was in the first century. Jesus was far more controversial than what you ever give him credit for. Jesus, he goes nuclear in this moment. He elevates the discussion from the traditions of man and the legalism of religion, from the laws of man to the law of God. He, he takes it to the very top of the ladder and says, okay, you wanna talk about this? Let's talk about David when his men were hungry. Let's talk about when he went in there and that consecrated bread, that consecrated bread, God said, not man, God said that only that bread could be eaten by the priest. There were 12 loaves, they were placed there. And when they replaced the 12 loaves, the 12 loaves that were you know, being done away with, they were not to be done away with, but the priests were to have that. And the priests were to eat that, eat that, but nobody else was allowed. So Jesus said, you remember when David did that? And what happened? When he went into the house of God, the priest gave him the bread. And David ate that bread and his men ate that bread. And the implication was clear. They broke the law of God. They broke the law of God. The priest broke the law of God. David broke the law of God. His men broke the law of God. But the problem was the text didn't say they did anything wrong. The text didn't condemn the priest. The text didn't condemn David. And the text did not condemn his men for doing what they did. They broke the letter of the law. Jesus agrees with that. The religious establishment agrees with that. David knew that. The priest knew that. Everybody knew that they had broken the letter of the law. But Jesus is saying there's something more important here than the letter of the law. And they're thinking, what's more important than the letter of the law? Jesus would say, the spirit of the law. And Jesus introduces something brand new. 
Jesus introduces a brand new way of thinking that shouldn't have been brand new because it was really there the whole time. But Jesus just brings it out and says, hey, they broke the letter of the law, but you know why God didn't have a problem with it? Because they didn't break the spirit of the law. God allowed his law to be broken without a penalty because of a person. Now think about this, think about your parents and you know, you got teenagers driving and you give them a curfew and say, okay, curfew's 12 o'clock, 12 midnight, you gotta be home, you gotta be home 12 midnight. And, and they go out and they're with their friends and come 12 midnight, they're not home. Come 12.30, they're not home. Come 12.45, they're not home. About 1.15, you tried to call, no answer. 1.15, your son, your daughter walks in, you're like, you're, you're emotional. What in the world? You know what the rule said, 12 o'clock. And, and then they begin to tell you, well, I was on my way home and I was due to be here by midnight, but I saw one of my friends on the side of the road and, and their car was, you know, they had a tire, it was flat. And so I decided, you know, I was gonna get in there and I helped them and it turned out to be more difficult. They didn't know how to do it. So I did it for them and it took a while and, and I made sure they got home. Oh, now a sensible parent, a reasonable parent, will say, I understand. And in that moment, a good parent, a sensible parent will set aside their rule because of what was going on. Now, Jesus is not promoting situational ethics, but Jesus is promoting an ethic that trumps in every situation. Jesus is not saying that it's one thing here and one thing there, no, no, no. Jesus is not promoting situational ethics. Jesus is promoting an ethic that wins in every situation. Here's what John MacArthur said about it. God sometimes sets aside his laws for the sake of mercy. What? God can set aside his laws, it's his law, it's eternal. Not a jot or God, how does God set aside his law? For the sake of mercy. You mean that God just ignored the fact that they broke a law because there was a person involved? They didn't like it. They didn't like how it felt. Some of you, you don't like how it feels. You're going to the end of the story and like, I don't know what this means. What does this mean for that? What does it mean for that? That's what they were thinking. The Pharisees, in order to condemn Jesus and his men, would have to back up and condemn David and his men and the priest. The religious establishment consistently, consistently ignored the spirit of the law in order to raise the letter of the law to the most important place. They would consistently take the parts of the law and put it in the most important place and ignore the point of the law. And the point that Jesus is making, the law is never, more, the, the law is never more important than the people than the law, than that the law was given to. The law is never more important than the people that the law was given to. They thought the law of God was the most important thing, but Jesus is saying, no, let me tell you what's more important to God than the law of God. It's people. You know how I know this? That's our history, Jesus would say. Before God ever gave our people the Ten Commandments, what did he do? He saved them. He redeemed them. He brought them up out of bondage. He rescued them from Egypt, took them across a parted Red Sea, and then he gave them the law. He gave his law to the people that he loved. He always loves his people more than the laws he gave to his people. Now, I've got rules at my house. I've got laws in my house for my boys, but you know what I care more about than my rules? My boys for whom I made the rules for. And this was so troubling. This, this, was, this was so infuriating to the people there that day. 
Because Jesus is saying to them, the law of God is never an excuse to withhold the love of God. And the letter of the law always submits to the spirit of the law. In other words, any interpretation of Scripture that restricts the flow of mercy is the wrong interpretation. That's what Jesus is saying. Your interpretation of Scripture can put you at odds with God. How do I know? Well, any interpretation of Scripture that restricts the flow of mercy to another person is bad interpretation. In other words, Jesus is saying, it's always unlawful to be unloving. What would you want, my men to stay hungry? What would you want, David and his men, to remain hungry? Do you think that the law of God was more important than they are to God? Really? Do you really think that? And Jesus is saying, when you use the law of God to withhold the love of God, you dishonor God. You are at odds with God. And then he says, this is a second example. Or haven't you read in the law that the priest on the Sabbath duty, they temp in the temple, they desecrate the Sabbath, yet are innocent? In other words, look at your priests. Your priests work every Sabbath. You don't condemn them. You don't think they're desecrating the temple. Do you know how hard they work? They, they, they slaughter animals. They drag those carcasses. They put them on the altars. I mean, it's hard work. They break the law of God in order to keep the law of God. What? They break the law of God within the framework of the law of God. And this is genius what Jesus does. He uses the framework of the law of God to make a case for an exception to the law of God. And they're like, I don't like this. And then Jesus looks at him and says, I know you don't, but I tell you, that something greater than the temple is here. And in that moment, Jesus takes authority over the temple of God and the law of God because standing in front of them was the law giver. Standing in front of them was the one who had taken his fingers and wrote that law down. And if anybody, if anybody was qualified to say, this is what this means, this is what this doesn't mean. This is the proper interpretation. This is the improper interpretation. If anybody was qualified, Jesus said, I am the one. Greater than the temple is in front of you. I'm going to tell you that the spirit is more important than the letter. I'm going to tell you that the point is more important than the parts. I'm going to tell you how to properly interpret all of this. Because Jesus knew that a misinterpretation of scripture leads to a mistreatment of people. He says, you're on the wrong side of God because of your misinterpretation. And I'm trying show you what God's been saying over and over and over again. I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. This was Jesus saying, let me tell you what's most important to God. And Jesus did this over and over again in his ministry, in his first sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Here's what Jesus said. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up, clarifies, explains, gives you the application of the law and the prophets. You want the Cliff Notes version of the Old Testament? Do for others what you would have them do for you. Jesus, that's what it's about. That's the spirit. That's the intent. That's the point. If in your interpretation, if in your theology, your belief system, if you ever get to the place where you are not willing to do for another person what you would want somebody to do for you, you 
have a bad belief system. You have bad theology. And Jesus, he puts it and makes it as clear as possible. Jesus is asked one day, just blatantly, what's most important, what's most important to God? What's the most important command? Jesus said, to love your Lord thy God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And everybody in the, in the crowd agreed. And then Jesus kept on going. He didn't stop. He said, and the second is like it. That is equivalent to the same as love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, Jesus would say the proof of you loving God is seen in you loving people. The confirmation of you being okay with God is the fact that you love people. Jesus, in a moment, took God to the center of our faith and then put people there with him. To say at the center of faith is a relationship with God and a relationship with people. And you cannot separate those. That cannot be duplicitous. One is not more important than the other. One will always influence the other. And all, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Again, the Cliff Notes version, if you want to know what all these commands are about, some of them, they make you scratch your head, you don't understand. Let me tell you, what God intended to be the ultimate application of all of those was to love God and love people. Where the interpretation got wrong, where the theology got wacky, things got wacky and people got mistreated. Injustice ruled and reigned. But Jesus clarified what was always most important to God. And it was the people that he had come to die for. The greatest law of God is the law to love people. It's what Jesus believed. And hear this, hear, hear this. When you side with and stand for the love of God, you are siding with and standing for the law of God. You are standing with it in the biggest way possible. You're standing in solidarity with its spirit, with its intent, with the point behind the law to begin with. Jesus would say to us, if you ever allow your theology to get in the way of mercy, if you ever allow your theology to get in the way of love, if you ever allow your theology to get in the way of how you treat people, a person, if you hate, if you malign, if you resent, if you refuse to forgive, if you shame, if you judge, if you castigate, if you stereotype, if your theology allows you to do that, Jesus says, not me, not me, not me. Jesus says, you have bad theology and you have work to do. More than that, Jesus said you can't be right with the Father and mistreat some of his kids. Can't do it. Can't do it. And Jesus closed by saying this, if you had known what these words mean, and then he quotes the Old Testament, Hosea, chapter six, verse six, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would have not condemned the innocent. You wouldn't have gotten on my guys. For the Son of Man, is the Lord of the Sabbath. Mark records, God created the Sabbath for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, God's laws were given to the people. God just did not create a people in order to give to the law. And the people, people, whether it's Jesus' hungry disciples or David and his hungry men are always more important. They had used the law to beat down, 
to abuse. That's what happened. But Jesus is making some points that God doesn't want your conformity. God just doesn't want your morality. God just, God just isn't concerned with your rituals and your rules and your sacrifices of what you can do for God. God wants mercy. That's his heart. You want to know? He peels open the heart of God and says, look in there. Let me tell you what's in God's heart. A desire for you to give mercy. A desire for you to give love. A desire for you to let kindness and justice flow to everyone and anyone. And Jesus would say, if you have a problem with that, you've got a problem with me. And if you've got a problem with me, you've got a problem with God. Because theology never gets in the way of ministry. And beliefs never get in the way of the flow of grace. Positions never become more important than people. And the law never becomes <coughs> more important than the people, the laws were given. <clears throat> Excuse me. Jesus would say, at the heart of what it means to worship God is having a heart for loving people. Jesus would say, if you come to the altar to give a gift, but you remember you have something in your heart against somebody else, he said, it'd be better for you to stop worshiping because you're not worshiping at all. Because you can't be right with God and wrong with some people. If you refuse to forgive and you resent and you've got bitterness in your attitude and say, I've not said anything. Yeah, but you've thought it and you feel it. Jesus said, you got to get that right because that's what it means to love me and to love the Father. That's what the reformers in the Old Testament would say. They showed up and they told the people in the day of Amos, I hate I despise your religious festivals. God said, your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I'm not going to accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll like a river and righteousness like a never failing. In other words, don't come singing to me with that in your heart towards somebody else because I don't want to hear it. At the heart of worshiping God is a heart for loving people. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Holy Spirit, speak to us. God, for me, I never want to end up on the wrong side of you. I don't ever want to end up on the wrong side of God in the name of God. I never want to make something most important that's not most important to you. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. In just a moment, at all of our campuses, we're going to sing a song that says, I'm coming back to the heart of worship. When it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. And sometimes we think that means something that it doesn't mean. Jesus said, if you're going to come back to having a heart for God, it begins with having a heart for people. And like me, to begin to side with and stand for those who have nobody to stand with and stand for them. 
So who is it that you need to forgive? Who is it that you have bitterness towards? Who is it that your attitude needs to adjust about? Who is it that you hate? Who is it? And why don't you just get rid of that today? Why don't you just get rid of that and come back to the heart of what it means to worship God, which is having a heart for the people that he died for. Let's all stand together at all of our campuses. Heavenly Father, speak to us. Let us get this right. In Jesus' name.